Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. It was a fallout in its truest sense because my father never had a plan B for me. So I had a lot of talents. I had a lot of creative outlets and I was exposed to a lot of really cool opportunities. Uh, First day of my freshman year in high school, I, I joined my high school radio station and became a presence. Really loved the art and science of broadcasting. And that's what I wanted to do. And he wouldn't buy it. He would have no part of that. And uh, he said that these skills could definitely help me as a physician, but he never he never nourished my natural talents. It was always, you're going to be a doctor, son. And it's nice that you have these extracurricular pursuits, but you're, you're going to do very well as a physician. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, to this number, 33444. You'll get a download right away. So our guest today is many things. So on his website, uh, which is attached here to the notes, uh, 20 different titles and monikers. He's a coach, consultant, business strategist, speaker, blues piano player, which is fantastic. I think it's a true renaissance man. He's the founder and CEO of Alish Communications. It's a consultancy focused on thought leadership, development, LinkedIn strategy. Our guest is a, I mean, he's a LinkedIn genius, right? He's, he's pioneered a unique educational approach to personal branding, uh, calls himself also an edutainer, which I, I love that one. Online, you know, his personal branding, online communication, which he's achieved widespread recognition for. He's got two master's degrees, one in IO psychology, which is industrial organizational psych. I, I highly recommend his TEDx talk, which uh, that will also be in the notes, but it's the undeniable presence of brand. I mean, he's proof positive that the power of personal branding so our guest today is J.D. Gershbein. J.D., thanks so much for joining us, man. Dr. Rob, that's a lot to live up to, what you said about me. I'll do the best I can, and thank you for having me. Since you say you operate best when you don't know what's coming, let me come at you from, from left field here. So that's as we great. met and we spoke, and we've kind of shared, you know, the biggest hinge moment that occurred in your life was in medical school. Help, help us and start with that. Yeah, that's not a piece of my my life that I make public or or put above the waterline, so to speak. But uh, I was groomed to be a physician from a very early age. I grew up in a in a household that was both uh, scientific and artistic, but I was always geared toward the science. My my father was a dedicated man of medicine, and from an early age, I was exposed to biology and chemistry and physics and accompanied him to his laboratory. He was a, a prolific cancer researcher, c- contributed a lot to our present body of knowledge on regenerative uh, capacity of the liver uh, and industrial uh, carcinogens. So uh, that was the shadow I grew up in. And 
uh, it was impressed upon me from an early age that uh, helping other people in pain uh, was the way to go. It was the uh, way to really optimize and maximize one's life. So I was on that path and um, busted free from it uh, on my own volition. And that was my so-called hinge moment. So, I mean, it's not easy to get into medical school. I mean, it's not. No. So obviously, I mean, you know, you're one of the top of the class. Obviously, I mean, you know, your intelligence will come through in this, but I mean, not so actually, dear Dr. Rob. I, <laughs> I, I, I got in on my third try. So, so first you even, time wasn't good enough. So you even had the persistence to get in. So well, I mean, walk us through that experience then. So, I mean, you're at medical school. How did the whole process come in? There must have been a lot of outside pressure. How did the whole process come to be? What happened? Well, getting in was almost an anticlimax. I, I was... Uh, uh, not very well prepared the first time I took the MCATs, the admission test. And in fact, I had a strep throat during the first one, and I, I bombed them in, in the parlance of our times. Second time I came back, I was good, probably put me on the cusp, not good enough, but I think it was that perseverance. It got me through the third. I, I scored very well and, and got in, and uh, I was with the program, and the the semester started in August and I moved through. I, I struggled. I, I am not a prolific studier the way some of these folks are. And, um, and by the time spring came, I had had enough. I, I was going through the paces by that point. And I remember um, just kind of strolling around the dean's office, um, getting ready to see him and what I was going to say and didn't consult my, my father on this, just did it on my own walked in and calmly said, hey, this isn't for me. I've been living dad's dream all along. And we went through about 15 or 20 minutes. I just told him that I was experiencing all sorts of uh, physiological uh, symptoms, uh, just a, a level of discomfort. I, I didn't feel I was measuring up. My grades weren't bad, but they weren't good. Uh, I didn't feel that I, I was retaining a lot of the material. A lot of it was truly beyond me. It was... Uh, uh, kind of an exercise in ill preparation, really. Um, there were aspects of, of, of the study that I was good at, but some I wasn't. And I just fell behind, uh, got upset, uh, felt disenfranchised, uh, couldn't keep my mind and focus on the books in the evening when people were studying well into the wee hours of the morning. And that was it for me. I, I made the decision, the conscious choice, if you will, to leave medical school, walked in, told them of my plans, and, and basically, in my mind, I was out. Um, the ramifications were, of course, had to reconcile this with Dad, who, needless to say, this was out of left field for him, right? His, uh, his only son, groomed to be a physician, who just leaves right there without consulting him, and, and it kind of set us on a very interesting orbit, uh, some issues of abandonment there. Uh, he was not pleased at all. And we were able to bring a lot of it together in his later years prior to his passing. So I feel that I was on good terms with him when he departed. But, uh, you know, uh, that was a, a decision that really it was not an inflection point, Dr. Rob. That was a hinge moment. And it, it really directed me more toward a, uh, a, an academic path that I was more aligned with. So I did go back into the classroom and study industrial organizational psychology and then on for my MBA in marketing communications. So uh, the habits of the classroom never left. It was just what I was studying was not right for me at the time. Right. 
you know, is it okay? Can you elaborate a little bit more on um, that fallout between you and your dad? And, and, and here's the reason why I bring that one up is because, I mean, there's so many, I think, individuals out there, and I don't really think it matters in what stage of life, but they are living parents' dreams and always trying to reach their approval. What was that fallout like? It was a fallout in its truest sense because my father never had a plan B for me. So I had a lot of talents. I had a lot of creative outlets. And I was exposed to a lot of really cool opportunities. Uh, first day of my freshman year in high school, I, I joined my high school radio station and became a presence. Really loved the art and science of broadcasting. And that's what I wanted to do. And he wouldn't buy it. He would have no part of that. And uh, he said that these skills could definitely help me as a physician, but he never, he never nourished my natural talents. It was always, you're going to be a doctor, son, and it's nice that you have these extracurricular pursuits, but you're, you're going to do very well as a physician. And he always led me to believe that it was going to come naturally to me, and it truly didn't. So the distancing was that even though I wasn't following his plan, I was still I was still a good egg, you know what I mean? I, I was still in the classroom. Uh, I knew how to study. I, I knew how to satisfy a, a curriculum and and get a degree. And I earned two degrees. I earned two master's degrees. Somehow I felt it wasn't good enough for him because I wasn't the doctor. But you know what? We do things in life that we feel we have to do to prepare us. And my futuristic vision uh, came alive after I got those two degrees because I couldn't envision myself as a physician. I could envision myself in business, and I feel that I'm doing now exactly what I was meant to do, and that is be in an area of business where I can uh, transfer very specialized knowledge and help people kind of construct their own life journeys now. And so, in um, was there a, and this is my last question on this piece, but was there was there a moment where that you all came together and he just said, you know, I'm proud of you. Oh yeah. I knew that was there. I mean, let's not lose sight of the fact that like in a lot of families, I looked up to my father. He was a positive role model for me. He did everything right. Or at least to me, he seemed like he was doing everything right. Um, and I mentioned to him as I was becoming a, a young father, he was, he was uh, alive when I, when I had my first daughter and I said, you know, I would never do anything that would make my kids feel uncomfortable about what they wanted to do. And from that, that was the biggest lesson I learned. If they demonstrated an affinity for something, I would certainly nourish it. But at the same time, if, if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be mad. I, I wouldn't be let down. And I think that the palpable feeling of letdown that I had for him was a point of contention for us. It was there for the rest of his life. But at the same time, I moved past it, and I told him I moved past it. And I, I always knew he was proud, and I think he, he would look down on me right now and think what I was doing was very cool. Well, it is cool. That's why I got you on the show, man. Well, thank you. You are a cool guy. Like I said, well, renaissance Well, I try man. to be. It's from years of studying you, Dr. Rob. <laughs> so in 2006, kind of on this hinge moment theme, in 2006, you had a, another hinge moment that led you into – pretty much like even what you do today in terms of thought yes. leadership and LinkedIn. Walk us, walk us through that. 
I was at a networking event and it was at the start of the social media revolution. It was probably in the very earliest of stages. I don't think it was an actual revolution yet, but we had these platforms and, and they were kind of coming into the mainstream of our conversation. Uh, and I was at an event and I kind of leaned into a couple of my colleagues who were on a site. Uh, one, one of my colleagues had his laptop up and I looked in and I said, what is that? And he said, oh, it's a social networking site for business called LinkedIn. Now, I know I would have come to it eventually. How can you not? But remember, this is year end 2006. Nobody was firmly established on any of these platforms. And I went home that night, created an account, and literally on the spot decided that I would transition my traditional marketing practice to a consultancy solely based on on this platform, on LinkedIn, on orienting people towards its power, which I saw early on. I mean, I right off the bat, I, I knew how great this thing could be, and I never shut up about it. So that became my work, my mission, and I feel that I answered a call of leadership at that moment and decided I wanted to be the guy or the person that was going to mentor people in this area to to get them ready for prime time on these sites hey this is dr rob bell our new book puke and rally it's not about the setback it's about the comeback can be bought anywhere books are sold or go to the website pukeandrallybook.com and how did you know that that was going to be your your medium? How did you know that was it? I didn't know at the time. I, I felt it could be cool. I, I had a vision of what it could look like if I really worked it properly. And I became a leader by example. And I showed people what it was and met them in coffee shops. And we all brought our laptops and booted it up and looked at LinkedIn and and said, here's what I think could happen. Here's what I think we should do on this. There, there was no instruction manual at the time. We were, we were just kind of doing our best to, to go into our devices and figure out what was on the other side. What, what, what could happen if we really worked it conscientiously and put ourselves out there in a way where we could be taken at face value and folks would believe that we were the real deal when it came to our products, our services, our niche, our companies. And obviously, I had to wait for a lot of things to happen. LinkedIn was very embryonic back in those days, very crude by today's standards, not the aesthetic, vibrant, visual platform that it is right now as we speak. So once it started to come together and uh, people started to lean in more, I was the guy coming up in search. And I had written a lot of content. I was out there building a brand as a specialist in this area. And when people came calling for knowledge, I was the guy that got the phone calls. What was the biggest phone call that you got? Well, the turning point for me, that hinge moment was I was minding my own business and got a call from a colleague who I'd been speaking with about LinkedIn. And he says to me, he says, JD. And I said, yes. He said, how much do you charge to write a LinkedIn profile? And that's when I knew, in fact, I said it to my wife that night, honey, I think I've got a career here. And I wrote that a, a pittance by today's standards for what I charged him. Uh, but at the time, 
he was a guy who, like me, saw the value of this and uh, knew the importance of back then even building a brand, which is something that has become truly at the forefront of what we do as business professionals now. And so, again, the point about the hinge is it only takes one. So it was just one phone call from a colleague that needed your assistance. That was one of them right there. And then there's another hinge down the road, if I may share. It, it led me to the other great hinge, which uh, as I was turning the corner as a professional speaker and I was uh, on my way out to, to the stage to speak to about 300 micro business owners in downtown Chicago. It was, it was a big gig and it was a good one. And these were, these were people who were really ready for me. And, and the organizer, right as she's ready to introduce me, says, okay, JD, we know you're going to deliver the goods on LinkedIn. And I said, well, that's what I'm here for. That's what you paid me for. But then she says to me, and no one had ever said this to me, so, so you know what? Be your regular real self, your authentic self, and tell them a little bit about your story. How'd you get here? What brought you here to us? And at that time, my mindset was, okay, I've got to be the smartest person in the room. I'm coming in as the quote unquote finger quotes here for you folks at home, the expert. And I've never self-declared as an expert, but I had to be the guy who was there to dispense the knowledge. I didn't think that anybody gave a rat's ass about my story. Still don't. But you know what? It's my differentiator, as I mentioned in my TED talk. So I came out and about 10 minutes into the program, I felt that I had covered a lot of bases. I basically put down my remote just started to walk freely amongst the space and just talk about what what brought me here, my story. And it was then I realized, and this was back in 2011, that our stories and the manner in which we tell them are truly what differentiate us. Because we are all commodities and we are all replaceable parts. What becomes irreplaceable is the measure we bring, the gravitas we bring, and the focus that we can shift in others toward our perspective, our way of thinking, uh, our way of guiding them. And that is the essence of not just thought leadership, but of leadership. In an excellent context of gravitas, if I may say so. You may. But share with us then the power of storytelling. I mean, it's something that we've heard, you know, it becomes very cliche, but I mean, you discovered that early on. I mean, what what have you seen in terms of people's stories that, that make such a difference in their brand and their impact? That's a great question. And we're now pressed to be storytellers. We're charged with the responsibility of telling our story, of being good stewards of our story. And that's a challenge because not everybody's cut out to tell stories. And evidently there are many people who feel it's a coachable skill. And there are people who will come at you under the guise of being a storytelling coach or a storytelling consultant or rather than being in marketing which i mean we've been telling stories in marketing since the dawn of marketing it's now people helping people tell and sell their stories so building the story is one thing telling it is quite another selling it is the daily challenge and companies today you see this more and more even on the traditional media outlets they're putting more of themselves, more empathy, more EQ out there into their messaging. It's their company's story. It's the family history, the pedigree, the lineage as to how they've moved from uh, a few square feet in someone's basement to uh, to having multiple facilities worldwide. 
the Jeff Bezos, Amazon.com story is one such. Uh, Bill Gates, um, Stephen Jobs, it goes on and on how from humble beginnings, they built huge empires. And now people, and Elon Musk too, people now want to know what those humble beginnings really look like. And that becomes the story. So these uh, these hinge moments that, that I've had discussed with you, which, you know, it's not out for public consumption. This is stuff we keep a little bit more close to the vest. That's what really defines me as a practitioner, as a man, as a uh, husband, as a father, as a dog owner, and a Chicago Cubs fan. I knew you were going to throw that in there somewhere. I didn't have to go. at the beginning. There you go. So I think that's what more people are realizing now, don't you, is that there there is this kind of urgency to tell our stories now. One more example I'll make is look at Sir Paul McCartney. Uh, for years we grew up, uh, I, I, I mean, the Fab Four, come on, the Beatles. It was that group that McCartney played in before Wings, right? That's sure. the way a lot of people look at it because they weren't old enough to remember when the Beatles broke and became such a force. But their impact, their, their lasting impact, their legacy, which for so many years was just chronicled by biographers, is now coming out of Sir Paul. He's been on pretty much every major outlet. The cameras are turned on him, and he's telling about the Beatles' humble beginnings when they played the bars in Hamburg, when they, when they met in Liverpool, all the internal squabbles that the band had to go through to become who they were. And that's fascinating because these are iconic figures. And if it works on the iconic level, iconicity can be brought into the personal branding level as well. We can all be iconic figures. Because that means we're attached to a certain product or service. Our associations, our, our image is bundled into that. And that's really the essence of personal brand work today is to associate yourself with a product, service, company, or niche, or skill set. You know, and part of your speaking and persona that I think you do such a great job at is, I mean, you bring a sense of humor that I think is very dry. I, I relate to it. It's humorous, you know, but you were a comedian before. I mean, you had skills that you brought from that. I mean, I guess my skill is this, like what skill from improv that do you still apply to business and what you do today? I was exposed to improv comedy uh, back in the 1980s, late 1980s at a time here in Chicago uh, when the second city was thriving. It was producing a lot of great performers. Uh, the pantheon of the great comics that we knew from that era, from Saturday Night Live, from SCTV, and really from the movies. Now, that's not to say that I, I put myself in that class far from it, but I studied improv, and I knew about it back in the 80s, and I was a younger dude. And But what it taught me was not only to be present in the moment, but it's probably the single greatest platform that unleashed my communication power. Uh, I knew back then, and even when I did broadcasting, which is you're basically one person speaking to many, but in improv, you're, you're engaging with one person at a time, but in full view of an audience, at least in the performing improv sense. And it really taught me to be more attentive and responsive and emotionally present for people who are communicating with me taught me how to listen, taught me how to communicate, taught me how to extend conversations. And how valuable is that in business today, Dr. Rob? I mean, that's, that's what separates us from the people who aren't producing or who aren't effective. Uh, people have to be listened to. They want to be listened to. And if you're not there for them or they get a sense that you're not there for them, 
it's a problem. And I've always tried to skirt any communication chasms early on. And I feel that my my training in improv and later in sketch comedy and my study of humor, it, it plays into my whole authentic being. I mean, what you see with me is what you get. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not pretending to be anyone else. I'm, I'm auditioning for the role of me in your stage play. And sometimes I'll get the call back, other times not. But the important thing is that I keep showing up in character. Yes, and. Yes, and, my friend. Absolutely. Huge skill that we all can apply to every day and, and speaking and, and even. Can we, can we use that on online discussions as well? Yes, and you can credit it to the second city of Chicago and obviously Toronto as well. And I mean, when you talk about the history of Yes And and the, the glorification of, of the Yes And vehicle, uh, it, it's an exercise that could be invaluable because it just keeps us going. It keeps us percolating and ideas bubble up. Uh, the use of applied improvisation in business, in medicine, even helping uh, Alzheimer's patients uh, reclaim memory function. I, I mean, improv techniques are invaluable. Uh, and it's becoming a, a piece of my, uh, of my platform. I, I bring a lot of improv into what I do. When on, on that piece, what I see a lot that happens, and maybe not so much on LinkedIn, I think that's why it's definitely a special forum, but I see a lot of angst uh, a lot of complaining, a lot of things that happen online that just aren't really necessarily pretty. And it, it's kind of, you know, it's disheartening sometimes because, I mean, you know, people will just dig themselves into these beliefs, into these viewpoints, and it comes out, which isn't necessarily bad, but then the arguments start, and it's not really a discussion to see where somebody's viewpoint's coming from. It's a point to say, look, I'm right. And as I've learned since being married, right, I can be right or I can be happy. <laughs> what what would you recommend if someone has listened to this and they get in these online heated arguments sometimes? What's a way to, um, you know, make sure that we're always leaving on good terms? Well, on my platform, LinkedIn, which is where I live, you don't really see a lot of that. Um, I think people realize the political correctness of LinkedIn. It's a buttoned up site. You have to kind of adhere to formality and convention and courtesy and respect and, and all of that. And uh, you're mostly there with people who want to assert a, a worldview uh, we're still learning how to engage on these platforms. Look how many people just flat out step into it every day, mostly on Facebook and Twitter. Um, but for the most part on LinkedIn, which is a unique dynamic in social media because it's around the business conversation. So again, nobody wants to offend anybody's sensibilities. Sometimes it just happens. But when you're trying to assert thought leadership, when you're trying to put your your own DNA into the into the into the thread into the engagement things happen uh, you may just not come off as that appealing or that knowledgeable and someone may call you on it and you know look I'm 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 all for the engagement uh, on social media but it's got to lead somewhere 
it, it just can't be here, you know, here's my cool blog, my, my blog of amazingness that will change the way you think, or, or here are my, my latest video pieces for your, for your viewing pleasure. But it's about having what I call substantive discourse, where you're communicating in a very logical, um, constructive way. And you're ideally nurturing a relationship that could form as a result of it. We should be engaging for the right reasons. Unfortunately, sometimes we're not. What is the biggest er error that people make on LinkedIn? I mean, you've talked about errors of omission before in, in your talks and mm -hmm. your work, but what's the biggest error that people make? Well, as a positive psychologist, I don't like to harp on the mistakes that people make because I really do believe in, in reinforcing them positively and making sure that they feel they're on the right track uh, because then they'll be more energized and more incentivized to do the work. But yes, there are mistakes. And I think the greatest mistake, and, and we, we're sh being shown this now as we tape this, uh, about, say, 14 to 15 years since I entered the fray, but LinkedIn is now entering, as we speak, its uh, third decade of being in existence since its inception is that we're leaving so much about our messaging and ourselves behind. And we're only putting up just a very scant view of who we really are in business. And the profile, uh, the LinkedIn profile has become the epicenter uh, of our brands in the business universe. And especially now as we're taping in a global pandemic where everybody is online and everybody's in front of a device. And if they hear about you in business, where are they going? Well, they're going to your LinkedIn profile. Hence, what have you got there for them? And really, I think the, great, the greatest injustice served on folks on LinkedIn is that they just haven't prepared their profiles for the types of decision-making that they want, whether it's to sell their product or provide their services or whether it's to connect with high-caliber professionals and develop strategic partnerships or referral networks. They're just not positioning themselves for those outcomes. And that's been my work all along is from day one, I knew what I wanted. I knew the types of relationships I wanted in business. And I engineered, in fact, reverse engineered my profile so that I talked about the client's pain before I spoke about how cool I was. But you are so cool, man. Oh, stop yourself. I mean, so the I'm algorithm in my own mind, the algorithm of LinkedIn, how has that changed and, and how does that work? It does scare people, does it not? I mean, wow, uh, how, why am I bothering to post or produce this content if it's not going to get seen by the right people? And people who are spending big money on LinkedIn, sponsoring and promoting ads, they get seen. You know, it's um, a bit of a content frenzy out there on these sites. And there's only so much we can do. Uh, you're going to meet the algorithm head on no matter who you are. And I've been kind of espousing the... Uh, the assembly of a content portfolio that you can lead people to rather than this spray and pray approach that we see where people will throw content out there into the mainstream and, and see who acts on it. And if only a few people see it, they feel it's a failure. Well, we're all building our audience. In fact, there's a lot of shifts going on right now. We're kind of moving our behavior from building the network to building the audience because everybody's trying to create value for that network. And they become an audience, uh, ideally a listener, ideally a participant, and in a perfect world, your 
brand ambassador. So if you're going to get people kind of on your bandwagon, you've got to continuously pound the system with content that's going to be of value to them. Your efforts have to show in everything you do. So you can't be um, combative. You, you can't be uh, a person who's engaging in conflict. You have to kind of be uh, the devil's advocate and all that and, and move to a place of getting your viewpoint out to the right people. And, and I'm kind of seeing this more and more. Um, I'm not into building huge networks. I'm not quite sure what the huge network does for you. Uh, there's a lot of value and sustained profitability that can come from smaller networks. Again, it, and it plays into the quality versus quantity argument. Uh, you want to bring in high caliber professionals. You want to get bring in people who feel your relevance, who will support you, uh, who will take a bullet for you. Uh, figuratively, not literally, of course, Dr. Rob. And these are the people you want to move forward with in business. They're the ones who ideally will not, not just share your work mechanically by just liking it, but truly try to get it in front of people. What does it mean? What does thought leadership mean in, in terms of where we are in society today? A lot of definitions are being advanced on thought leadership uh, and a lot of, uh, of redefinition going on as well. I, I define thought leadership as leadership. It, it's a pure form of leadership uh, where you've kind of taken an advance cognitively and you are thinking your way through situations that, that becomes almost an optimal version of, of how people should deal with the same types of challenges. So to be a thought leader in social media that means you're, you're advancing a unique viewpoint that is systematically or even subliminally guiding others to good decision-making, uh, design thinking, critical thinking. These are people who feel that you're setting the example, uh, leading the pack, so to speak. And obviously you need a, a very deep intrinsic association with this area of business or, or life. Uh, to be considered a thought leader, but it's also something that is acknowledged and bestowed upon you. It's not something that you should declare out of first person. But really, I, I look at thought leadership as a way of guiding thought and principles and value systems from afar. Uh, many thought leaders don't have one-on-one -on -one contact with their constituents. They're just out there kind of setting the tone, uh, setting the pace, so to speak. Um, but they also have incredible knowledge, deep knowledge, broad-based knowledge of their subject matter. Many of them, uh, in, in the old day, we used to call them deep domain experts and now thought leaders because they're actually um, catalyzing action. They're catalyzing thought into action. So as a deep domain leader yourself and, and thought leader, when it comes to mental toughness, how does mental toughness apply to society that we're in and in business and life? Well, pre-pandemic or peri-pandemic or post-pandemic, um, we are smack dab in the middle of a, of a global healthcare crisis right now that has forced the virtualization of business. Uh, it is not life as we know it. It may never be. And it, it's, it's truly a shame. And from the behavioral shifts that have come out of this, ideally, uh, 
what we have to reconcile is who we are as professionals. How are we leading? How are we serving others? Uh, how do we go out there every day and present ourselves? And uh, all of those leadership traits uh, that everybody does have that run in the background have to come to the fore. And not, that, not just if they want to be known as leaders, but if they want to be known as competent professionals. So it boils down to getting in there. I mean, into the trenches, man, rolling up your sleeves, answering every email, answering every voicemail, really fine-tuning your perception on these social platforms, paying attention to who your colleagues are and what they expect of you or what they would like from you, and positioning yourself for the types of results that you're looking to drive. Um, I look at every email I respond to, every voicemail I respond to, every video I create, every podcast I do, thank you for having me, as an opportunity to build my brand awareness and create value for others. If I'm not doing that, then I tend to pull back on the throttle. But when I'm into it on a daily basis and bring it every day and harness everything that I've learned from my hinge points that you so beautifully coerced out of me today, then I know what my mental toughness is. I'm in it every day. I feel I can compete on these platforms. I'm in my element. And I think that's what gives us our grit and embodies us uh, in, in the virtual world. Because that's now our challenge. Our challenge is to seem as real as we possibly can when people can't be face-to-face -face with us. J.D., what is one question that I should be asking that I haven't asked? Um, what do I want on my Italian beef sandwich? I've never heard that one before, but please. Well, for folks outside Chicago, telling them about thinly sliced seasoned Italian beef on a beautiful, soft french bread uh it, it's it's a tough thing it's a it's a cuisine indigenous to chicago i could have gone with pizza because everybody likes that but but italian beef is a more indigenous item um and of but, course but isn't, being, isn't huh? it the, isn't it the bread because i'm just a big fan i mean i think the bread is what makes that sandwich the bread makes any sandwich my man but this particular bread i mean you have in my case you have it what's called baptized where they dip it into the gravy and then they put some hot jardinera on it sometimes mozzarella cheese it's a chicago favorite mm. so i'm showing a little bit of my chicago branding so where um, where in chicago do we get that sandwich all over the place people have their favorite places for it but uh, but that's an that's again that's a, that's a Chicago thing. Any any what, listener who I make I'm making a very visceral connection now with anybody that's from Chicago, who's had Italian beef sandwiches. What, where's your favorite place to get it? Uh, well, it's in the city, which is kind of closed off to me. Um, a, a commercial here for a place called Al's. There's also Mr. Beef. There's Roma's. These are all great places. But um, anyway, the question that you should ask me, you know, from a business perspective. It's gone in a lot of different directions, and I think a great question to ask me is, "What's next?" Please. Because I, I love to I love to talk about futuristic perspective. Now, I've I've really been leaning on that a lot, and trying to pass it through the lens of of the coronavirus, but at the same time, remove myself from the equation. And I think that the workplace is clearly revolutionized. We know this. We we know that whatever happens in, during the recovery 
uh, once a vaccine makes its appearance, uh, we're still going to have a little bit of gun shyness, I think. There'll be some PTSD to, to resolve, but the future of business looks very different than it, than it did prior to the onset of, of the pandemic. What are people going to be doing? How are they going to be working? I think the habits of working virtually now are ingrained. More and more people who postponed or neglected a study of social media altogether are now looking at it to see where will it help them. Uh, anybody that's raising young children and going through online learning, college students who unfortunately will not have the vicarious uh, life experience of, of walking on a campus and taking part in organizational stuff. I mean, that's, those are huge hits, but what it is doing is it's, it's, it's displacing our value system. Yes, but it's also really drawing out the importance of human connection. So I am that social scientist who loves what he's doing in the virtual realm, but I also realize that for all of the good things that social media can do, it can truly alienate and peripheralize us as humans. And we've got to find a way now, that's the next great challenge, to stay human and stay in the game while staying on our devices. How do we do that, man? What do you, where, where's, where's the place to start and what do we need to do? We've got to develop superhero nervous systems with more synapses and more neurons that fire neurotransmitters across the synaptic junction and keep us more engaged with people. No, but but seriously, folks, um, the, the key is, is that we pay attention to the innovation going on because I think we're in a new path now where the the products and the services that will make our lives easier have yet to be introduced to the marketplace. What's, what's going to keep us uh, focused on what we need to do, but yet very present and accountable to those who love us and who need us, who need us to be in the real world. So IRL and things like AI and uh, artificial, well, artificial intelligence and all of these things that kind of are out there, which are kind of making their entry. Uh, it's, it's not even bit by bit anymore. It's, it's almost becoming a mainstream uh, type of event to hear about new things, especially in healthcare. What's gonna just enhance the quality of human life? By being at home, we're gonna save lives. We're gonna live longer, ideally. We're gonna take better care of ourselves. We don't have the, the hustle bustle of, of commuting to work every day, many of us anymore. I, I miss it terribly. I, I, I don't miss being a computer, but I miss going into my city and I miss flying around the country going to speaking engagements. But there's another easier piece here is that I'm saving wear and tear on my joints. I'm, uh, I'm getting more sleep. <laughs> um, and, and this does play into this whole futuristic perspective. We're ideally going to be better and we're gonna be able to serve people in more profound ways by not being in front of them. And I think that's the greatest boon of the technology. And it's certainly not self-limiting in that respect. JD, man, I really appreciate you being on uh, our podcast. And you know, I always end it like this, man, but it's like, where, where do you want, and I think I know the answer, but where do, you <laughs> want, where do you want people to tune into you and learn more about you? Well, if, the, you know, I encourage people to find me. I'm very easily researchable. It shouldn't surprise anybody that I have an account on LinkedIn and I'm I'm searchable there. Are you doing show Link, notes? Will, link, will there be LinkedIn. some show notes here? LinkedIn, yeah. That's what is that? Facebook for business? Of course um, we're doing show notes, yeah. Oh, can I recommend something like 
Because I saw the video that you did. It was kind of a comedic video. You had, you know, Morgan Freeman narrating it. Um, Ryan well, was I had his a name. Morgan Freeman impersonator. Yeah, it. Ryan was. Boy, that was funny. Well, thanks. That was a lot of fun to do. And that's really where where I take this coronavirus thing personally, is I was gearing up to do a lot more humorous work in, in video and um, not taking myself so seriously. And obviously, I can't go out and do that. I was getting ready to launch a show that I would tape in front of a live audience and do some business theater. Uh, I've assembled a cast of improvisers and sketch comics to act out business theater. So uh, now I'm taking it to the virtual stage. We'll see what happens. But uh, I just like to do fun work. And uh, and again, that plays into my authenticity. But I really appreciate you uh, being here, man. But I'll, I'll put those links on there. And uh, thank you so much for, for joining us, man. Thanks for having me and for being so well prepared. I do a lot of podcasts, Dr. Rob, and, and it's always a plus when the conversation flows so freely. For And thanks for bringing it out of me. And uh, Hinge Point is just a great way to get people talking. Well, I, that's just the one thing I believe, man. Like, you know, if you're going to look back on anybody's story, there's there's a moment in there, whether it was one person they made, whether they got a call or is that event that happened mm-hmm. made all the difference. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, brother. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.